0: This is the You Can Learn Chinese podcast, part of the Seneca Network from the China Project. For everyone who's trying to learn Chinese or reaching for the next level, you came to the right place. I'm your host, Jared Turner, co-founder of the Mandarin Companion Graded Reader Series, longtime resident of China, and I wish the voices in my head spoke Chinese. It'd be great practice. My co-host is John Patterson, co-founder of Mandarin Companion, founder of AllSet Learning, the Chinese grammar wiki, Sinosplice.com, and originally he never wanted to move to China. He thought there were too many red flags. John and I are going to talk about how seemingly small changes in study efforts can result in big differences in learning gains, followed by a guest interview with Marcus Murphy, a Chinese language instructor from Tennessee. Let's get to
1: it. Hey guys, this is Jared Turner coming at you from Utah here in the United States. Hi everybody, my name is John Pasden and I'm in Shanghai, China. How's it going? That was really good, John. Thanks, buddy. All right.
0: All right. Today, we are going to be talking about learning, practicing,
1: effort. Yeah, because I think we all know it's not just about the total number of hours. It's also about how hard you're trying, what you're actually doing, what you're focusing on. So we want to cover some of the angles related to that.
0: A great place to start on this, John, I think is going to be with that 10,000-hour uh, rule. As I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with this. It was, it was uh, popularized by Malcolm Gladwell uh, in his book, Outliers. It was published maybe about 15 years ago. And in that book, he talks and he says that in order to become a true expert in something, you need to have 10,000 hours of, uh, I guess, practice or you know, experience in, in doing whatever this is in order to become a true expert in any subject. I actually remember reading this book, and I I thought it was really interesting. He brings a lot of great uh, anecdotal evidence and research to kind of talk about this this idea. But, you know, in in more recent years, that, that idea has been challenged a bit, saying, okay, you know, it's not just about, you know, putting in the time. It's not just about having the quantity of time that you're putting into something. It's also about the quality of what you're practicing, of, of what you're actually putting that effort into and, and how you're going about the practice. And so this is something that we're going to talk a little bit of here about today of like, are you putting the time in for you know, learning Chinese? I mean, maybe you are, but what are you actually doing in that time that you're you're devoting to your studies? Yeah.
1: I mean, to be fair, if you put in 10,000 hours, I hope you're not just doing it mindlessly. Like You are putting some thought into it. You are actually trying. Like, why would you keep going for 10,000 hours if you're not really putting mental effort and, you know, you don't have some kind of emotional commitment? But, you know, like Jared's saying, there are smarter ways to to apply yourself uh, within those those hours. And uh, I think sometimes we forget that. So I'd like to give an example from my own uh, history. Like when I was still in the U.S. and I was studying Chinese before I came to China. This is in the, the late 90s. And, um, you know, I knew Chinese I had tones, it's hard to pronounce, yeah, yeah, it took me a while to get used to pinyin, but I still didn't, like, really put in a lot of effort to the pronunciation. Like, I knew my pinyin, I kind of knew stuff when I heard it, I thought that was good enough, and so it wasn't until I came to China that I had a rude awakening, like, whoa, people actually don't understand me, I can't even have a basic conversation because I didn't put enough effort into really... Uh, getting pretty decent at the pronunciation in the beginning.
0: So I, I think this is a, a good thought experiment, John, heres let's, let's imagine in, in our minds uh, two individuals, both have spent maybe 10,000 hours in you know, learning, practicing, using Chinese. And you have one individual who has, you know, maybe they went through some courses or classes, whatever, that's it's fine. But they're also spending time in like trying to really fix some of their problems, you know, practicing different tones at different times and, you know, trying to really focus on some, you know, expanding their knowledge in certain areas that they're interested in. And then when they mess up, they're trying to understand where they messed up at and, and get better, okay? I think after 10,000 hours, that type of indi- individual is probably going to be able to have a pretty high level competency in Chinese, right? Oh, yeah. Now, contrast that to someone else who has spent equal amount of time have an experience in Chinese but you know they didn't really focus on the pronunciation you know they're just kind of using it to you know like oh it's this is good enough um you know I yeah I'll look up new characters as they come along but maybe it's not that important and maybe in this person they're there might be really good at just kind of chit chat or carrying on or, you know, they're maybe doing all the Duolingo things, whatever, um, but they're not really focusing on improving some certain areas. You know, they may have just like a really good competency and just kind of everyday things and getting along. But when you get into more complex topics or something or uh, yeah, or, or whatever, their Chinese really struggles, you know, and to get to more, you know, difficult ideas and into reading or whatever. And they still, despite the amount of time that they've been speaking the language, they still might be hard to understand. And they've got a lot of problems with their language that they've never really taken the time to fix. And so, yeah, people can understand them, but they still sound a little strange in Chinese.
1: All right, so it's, I mean, it's probably not a huge surprise that if you spend your study time in certain ways, it's gonna have better outcomes than in certain other ways. But the other thing that we're trying to say is, even if you're doing the same thing, there are different ways you can do it. There are different approaches you can take that will be more effective and it might involve a bit more effort, a bit more focus on your part, and it can get much better results. And we have lots of examples of those. All right, so let's use one of our favorite examples of uh, flashcards. So, of course, you can download a whole bunch of HSK flashcard decks into your favorite flashcard app. And then you can just you can do your spaced repetition flashcards every day for like 10, 20, 30 minutes. Um, I and, can't wait, John. And that's... You know, that could be valuable practice. Um, that's one way to help you remember vocabulary. Hopefully, it's not the only thing you're doing. But, you know, you could rack up some hours doing that. But are there ways that you could maybe put in a little more effort and actually get more from that practice? Definitely. And so some
0: of these ideas here are saying, oh, okay, you downloaded a flashcard deck or whatever for your, you know, your flashcard app. Well, maybe take some time and look through that and start weeding out things that maybe aren't as relative or important to
1: you right now. Yeah, so spend some time and effort actually improving the quality of what you're reviewing. Another thing, um, I've had people ask me, I like to make paper flashcards. Do you you think that's a waste of time? And my answer is usually no. If you like to do it and you spend the time writing the characters, the, the fact that you made those flashcards can often just imprint a lot better. And you can actually remember better than if you just downloaded something and had it in your in your app.
0: I liken this a little bit to like making a list of things to do, sometimes it's getting it out of your head. And simply that act of writing it down as you remember to do it. So, uh, you know, you need a list afterwards. And sometimes that does happen, like you said, with these paper flashcards.
1: Yeah, and Jared, there's one other thing about flashcards that I've done that has worked nicely. Like I like electronic flashcards. I'm kind of lazy. I don't want to make a whole bunch of paper flashcards. Over the years, it would be you know just thousands upon thousands of them, and I don't want to do that. But when there are, are words which I know I can't weed out and I keep forgetting, sometimes those get the special treatment. They get the extra effort, and I make paper flashcards for those because I can carry them around. I can put them where I can see them, and you know I give them extra attention so that I learn those words because I want to, and I put the effort into it. In addition to adding words to your flashcards, I uh, also recommend, hey, put
0: phrases in there. Put sentences. Uh, you know, So we don't have to just limit ourselves to single isolated characters or just you know one or two characters in, in these instances. So you don't have to... You, you can think a little bit outside of the box in this. You, you can do more than what you may traditionally have thought of.
1: Right, but keep in mind, it is going to take a little more extra effort to find the right phrases, to find the right sentences that you know are good and worth reviewing, but that's going to pay off. All right, the next scenario,
0: you want to read a book. So one example, you find a book and the text in it actually might be quite difficult. So you do spend a lot of time in the dictionary, looking things up, um, maybe takes you... 15 minutes to look up everything and work through a paragraph and try to understand and comprehend what's being said, sometimes a little longer. And so you spend a lot of time going through that text and encountering a lot of new words and you're like, okay, great, I learned these words. So we have situations like that. I know I've done that before, John, right, I know you have, Uh, versus another scenario of where you find something that's a little easier to read for you, something that's closer to your reading level. Takes a little time. Maybe you have to hunt around. Maybe you have to test things out a little bit to find out what's right for you. And but you find something. And now instead of spending 15 minutes in a paragraph, you spend 15 minutes going reading through an entire chapter, and you encounter new words and stuff and everything.
1: Right. So both cases take effort. Right. Um, the first case is intensive reading. That definitely takes a lot of dictionary-focused effort. But the extensive reading effort is more on finding the material, or maybe having someone help you simplify it or something like that so it's kind of like thinking out of the box to put your efforts into something that makes your learning more enjoyable more memorable a little bit different so it's just not more of the same but you know that can really pay off and the research behind this specifically is is quite compelling
0: is that when we're reading at low levels of comprehension Uh, It's like, all right, you know, in that example I gave you, you've spent 15 minutes or longer in that paragraph, and maybe you encountered like 15 new words or something. You're like, oh, wow, look at all those new words I encountered, right? Do you learn them? "Ah, Not exactly, because at that point, you're using a lot of your native language and English, in my instance, to understand those words. So you're using a dictionary to look these up, and so you're understanding them translated into your native language as opposed to really understanding it in Chinese and you don't have a lot of context around it that you're really understanding. So your understanding of how they all fit in and and the meanings and everything are a little bit loose. And then contrasting that to uh, reading at a higher level of comprehension, you understand more of all the words and the context that's around that new word. And and it's interesting too, I've done some of my own research in this area that you calculate some of that reading speed if you're reading a little bit of faster pace uh, because you understand more of the words you actually will frequently end up encountering more unknown words uh, when you're reading at a faster pace than if you're reading very, very slow with something that's very dense with a lot of unknown words. And that's because you're just reading faster. And sometimes these unknown words, you'll see them again uh, as opposed to only occurring once in a sentence. So you have a lot more to stand, a lot more for your brain to grab onto to really kind of understand it. So same amount of time, but you're going to have a different outcome in,
1: in your actual learning All right, Jared is passionate about extensive reading. But I I think another way to look at this is you're putting in the effort, you're doing the reading, you're putting in the time. Well, look at what you're getting back. If, If you're doing the intensive reading, you're spending 15 minutes on a paragraph, you might start flipping through the book and doing the math and realize how many hundreds of hours it's going to take you to finish the book. And that's really demotivating. Whereas if you can read something simpler, it's actually motivating because you're following the story, You're not thinking as much about the language. You're actually thinking about the story. And that is super motivating and inspiring. So think about what you're getting for the effort you're putting in.
0: You know, and on top of that, John, if you are reading some material in conjunction and working with a teacher or tutor or in a class or discussing, like if you only have a paragraph to read, you don't have a whole lot to discuss. And But if you are, like I said, you're able to read more because it's at a better level for you, you have so much more to discuss. And in that discussion process, a lot of new things come up and you learn different new words and you are able to use what you just read and you know regurgitate it in different ways back
1: to whomever you're speaking with. All right. Well, speaking of regurgitating, let's go to the next example. And this is one that I've, I've dealt with a number of times. Um, and it's related to making a speech. So I've worked with clients in the past where they need to make a speech for their you know, their company dinner, the end of year thing or whatever. And I've seen a couple different scenarios and it plays out very differently. So in one scenario, the guy is kind of elementary level and his coworker wrote the speech for him and he basically just has to memorize it and practice it. And he doesn't even really know what he's saying. Like he looked up all the words at one point and has notes and all that. But when he goes through it, He's not really totally sure what he's saying. And so the end result is he's not so confident. You know, people are polite and they clap and everything, but he didn't really walk away from the experience with a confidence boost, a vocabulary you know increase, really much at all. He just kind of braved the gauntlet. Whereas I've had other clients where they do something where, like, they try to write the speech, and it's not very good, so their Chinese coworkers help them with it, and they work on it together, and they find... Somewhere in between, where it's mostly using their language, but it's formal enough for the occasion, and they actually know what they're saying, and they can actually pick up words and phrases that they remember from the speech, and it, it's just a much better learning experience. And they might have even put in less effort than in the first case, but they put it where it counts. Yeah,
0: you know, John, this reminds me of a movie. It was the new remake of The Karate Kid. It had Jaden Smith, it came out like what, 10 years ago or something? Jackie Chan. Uh, that's it. Oh, there, yes, Jackie Chan's in that one. I said Karate Kid, right, but it's not. in, Japan. It's in China. Not we know, Japan. we know, Whatever. it's not your fault. Anyway, but there's a part in that movie where the main character, Jaden Smith, he is apologizing to his, you know, I guess his Chinese you know, kind of girlfriend, right, is the love, love interest, interest in the yeah. movie. And uh, and he's got like on some piece of paper all the pinging written out and he repeats this, you know, apology Speech, if you will, to her. And I'm sure he had no idea what he was saying. <laughs> and to this day, he didn't learn that Chinese, did he? No, and unless we got to bring Jaden
1: Smith on this podcast to prove if he does speak Chinese or not, right? <laughs> yeah, so work smarter, not harder, guys. Um, that's one case where putting the effort in the right place can uh, really make a big difference. Okay, for this last example here, okay, imagine you're
0: going into some sort of situation where. You know, you knew you need to do something in Chinese. Uh, now, you could have, I think, two general approaches. One, hey, just go in there, just wing it. Let's just see what happens. Um, you know, maybe maybe you can pull it off with minimal grunting and pointing and placoing, whatever. Versus you take the time to prepare for that situation you, you think of uh words that you're going to need to use you think of maybe how to use it and you can come in with a even some prepared sentences or ways to say something when you go into that situation which one is going to re- which one is going to result in some better outcomes in learning
1: yeah i think i think that some people do this only for really important things like you know i need to uh talk to my girlfriend's dad about Mariner, you know, (laughs) I don't know, like really important things, but really it can be about any trip to the store. It can be about any little chat with the, with the guard at the gate. Um, and if you don't know what to say, you can look it up in advance. You can even talk to your teacher about it. And that extra effort is going to pay off in each of those interactions. And it's not only if you live in China, it's anytime you have interactions with, with Chinese people. I was just talking to a client who, um, he was telling me about a conversation he had uh, in a Chinese restaurant with a very nice Taiwanese uh, owner, and he said it was kind of awkward, but very nice guy. And so at least they had a conversation. But what if he had prepped for that conversation a little more, right? It could have gone a lot better, and he could have learned a lot more. Absolutely. And you know, we understand, and you you can't prep for every
0: conversation. But think about this: Can you, right? There are the if you haven't when you encounter it. When you have opportunities to speak, there's often some very common questions that do come up, and you can prep for those, right? And and you maybe have your standard answer for some of the stuff like, oh, where are you from, where you live, whatever. But maybe now, instead of that, you could just, having your normal response, you could prepare a little bit more of an elaborate response. How could I give a little more detail about where I'm from and, and learn to say, oh, I'm from the western part of my country or whatever it is. There's a lot more things that you can prepare to even uh,
1: there's a lot more things that you can do to prepare for even random conversations. For sure. So um, I think I think the takeaway here, if we were to sum it up, would be um, it's worth reflecting a bit on your own studies. Um, before you reflect, though, if you're a beginner, definitely put effort into pronunciation in the beginning. But for everyone else, Let's reflect a bit on our studies. Are, are we just putting in the time or are we really putting in effort and, and trying to be smart about, about what we do in our studies? Because it can really pay off a lot better if we do that.
0: Absolutely. And to come back to a little bit to that 10,000-hour rule um, in that, hey, it's not just about you know, practicing. It's having that fo- focused practice. Is that even some of the research in this area takes it steps further. Uh, in that saying, hey, you know our emotions and what we're doing are are pretty are critical things. So, are, are you enjoying, you know, what you're doing? Are, are you whatever you're doing? Are you enjoying your class? Are you enjoying this? Uh, are you enjoying Duolingo? <laughs> are you enjoying what you're reading? You know, if you're not, then uh, you know, look for something that you are enjoying. Use your language in a way that uh, that is is bringing joy to you, uh, and also that your motivations are really important. That's, that's another big big important thing that comes out in, you know, in those hours of practice is like, you know, why are you doing this? And, and making sure you have your motivations aligned with what you're enjoying and why you're doing everything together. So, you know, these are all really important things, but, you know, you, you bring all that together and you put the time in, you're going to get
1: some results. Well said. This is not really a case of no pain, no gain. Um, you're putting in the time. Just put in a little more thought and effort and you can learn Chinese. All right, now it's time for a word from our sponsor. And today our sponsor is Mandarin Companion, Chinese graded readers. These are easy to read Chinese novels that make your reading enjoyable. Today we are talking about our level one graded reader, The Prince and the Pauper. So this is an adaptation of the classic. It is set in a fictional Chinese kingdom. If you're a Chinese history major, you will maybe be frustrated, but most people will just enjoy being able to read a simple story which is set in ancient china
0: and this is one of the longer graded readers i think it's our longest level one graded reader um, and many people who've read this have said it is their favorite story uh, i really enjoyed this one and i know
1: john we spent quite a bit of time adapting this story yeah this one's not quite as uh, daily life as some of the other stories so some of the vocabulary might be slightly tricky not the easiest level one but definitely a very cool very fun uh, you know, classic story. It's a great, a great level one. So you can go out and get it today. It's The Prince and the Popper, Mandarin
0: Companion, level one, graded reader, using only 300 basic characters. You can find on Amazon, iBooks, Kobo, or wherever you get your books.
2: Enjoy it.
0: All right, now we have some listener reviews and comments.
1: Um, John, you want to kick us off with that one? All right, this is from Bear Trap RE Apple Podcasts in the United States. He says, currently my favorite podcast, five stars. I'm not a podcast person, but I love this show. I appreciate all of the insight and all of their tips really help my learning process. I know you guys read these reviews, so please keep up the good work. I wish you had more shows. Love you like a sister. Wow, more shows. Wow. Not enough for you. All right, we'll keep doing them. And loves you like a sister sister so all right well thank you those are some very kind
0: words yes awesome hey we appreciate that thanks so much all right and we just had an email came in seriously like an hour ago from wesley henderson and he says i love your books i've read about 15 of them i study japanese as well there is nothing nearly as good as your books available to japanese language students everything is short stories and they often have furigana I am not learning the characters. If you have the reading printed on each one for a Ghana. if you put out a series of stories just like your manner companion for Japanese language students, you would be the best graded readers available to Japanese students by far. If you do this, please do. If you do this, please do new stories. I'm reading all your manner companion. I don't want to read
1: all the same stories. (laughs) Thanks for
0: a great learning aid. You are the best, Wes. Oh, thanks, Wesley. We really appreciate it.
1: So furigana are these tiny little kana, you know, like the Japanese phonetic uh, writing, right above the characters. Mm. It's not quite as bad as pinyin right above the characters or right below, but um, it is a little distracting also. Well,
0: very good to know. I'm not as familiar with Japanese, but some people may not realize. But, John, you
1: are yeah proud of an intermediate level of Japanese, maybe a little higher. I was a Japanese major. I am rusty. I can still speak Japanese. I was just doing it the other night in a Japanese bar in Shanghai. Uh, But I need to get back to Japan. Love that place. Yes. I got to get back to China this year too. Also a good place. All right. Now it's time for rants and raves. John, what do you have for us today? Do you have a rant or do you have a rave? I have a rant, Jared. I was thinking about, you know, some of the things that I struggled with uh, back when I was learning Chinese and I was thinking about Pinyin and then I was firing up chat GPT as as I do all the time these days. And, uh, you know, I've been using it for lots of things related to Chinese. And it just got me thinking because chat GPT doesn't segment by word when it outputs pinyin. And actually, a lot of Chinese books for kids, which we've talked about before, you know, they're not usually good material for learners. They do the same thing, which is, you know, each character gets its own pinyin syllable. Um, You have no idea where the words start and end. But pinyin, when it's segmented properly, it, it gives you that information. So if it's uh, something that's really hard to read and it has pinyin, then it's helping you with the word segmentation. Or if it's just a phrase, then the pinyin being properly segmented makes really clear, "Oh, this verb has two characters, and you know, this noun has one character, you know, that kind of thing. So um, I just wish that books and apps, if they take time to, to provide pinyin. Just go the extra mile and segment the pinyin according to words. It's so much more helpful, and it's correct by the pinyin standard. That's it. Both there, the Happy pinyin, then. That's fantastic.
0: <laughs> That's my rant. All right, Jared, what do you got? Rant or rave? I have got a rant, and it's been a while since I've had a rant. I, I, I don't know, 10 episodes or something. So finally, I found something that just really chaps my heart. Oh, man, this is a double negative. So it's positive. Yeah, I know. Go ahead. Okay, all right. So uh, I I was, uh, it was a couple weeks ago, I was um, attending Utah Tech Week. And so part of this is that I went to this pitch competition, where people were uh, guys were pitching, you know, their, their startup idea. And, uh, a number of these startups were actually kind of off the ground They They were got some funding and they're got running. Well, this one, uh, startup, this guy, uh, he, he started the story. He's like, Oh, when I was teaching, uh, English in Korea, I was talking with this guy and I was trying to teach him, you know, English. And I was speaking as slowly and as clearly as possible. And then at th- and then in the middle of it, he just stopped and he's like, oh, this is so much for my brain. I can't understand everything and it's so hard for me to remember everything. And, and then I realized that's why, you know, we need something different to learn. And, and he went on to go pitch his startup idea. Well, right away, I knew whatever he was going to talk about, it's going to chat my hide and it really did. But it's like, yeah, I realized right away his, his whole premise on everything was, was really flawed is that I was speaking as slowly and as clearly as possible, right, John? It was like, a, okay, so John, so if someone's speaking Chinese as slowly and as clearly as possible, that means you should be able to understand them, right
1: <laughs> yeah, not necessarily yeah it, yeah, not necessarily and in right? fact I am it, I not- am in the in the group that says that you really shouldn't slow down. Speeched to the point that it's unnatural, because you know you just never get that, so a little bit slowly and clearly, okay, but don't go overboard
0: well th- that
1: whole concept was
0: the premise of his whole startup it was something around language learning it was about using you know video clips and you know to find you know like twenty video clips that you have this one instance of this word usage right uh. and so and if we show you all these video clips, then, you know, now you're really going to learn this word, learn this method, you know, learn the word or whatever it is. And, you know, and therefore, you know, this is. Well, you know,
1: well, well, Jared, I have, I have, have to say, I, I'm not sure that's like the method that you want to use to learn a language. But I've seen this one clip that someone did. I think it's called Ni And it's just like a minute of just little clips of people saying Nihao. <laughs> it's, it's actually kind of. <laughs> I don't know, funny, charming, refreshing. Uh, I'll see if I can find it. We could put it in the show notes. Uh, that sounds like fun. I, I'd enjoy that. But I do agree that this guy's premise is flawed. Like, Makes it yeah, sound like if yeah. you put so, a minute in between each word and speak each word clearly, that's <laughs> the easiest to understand or something.
0: And I, I will say, yeah, You so, you know, the clips, they can be helpful, but definitely, but his whole method is just about that He needs to be clear, precise, and, you know, we'll show you, you know, 10 movie clips or 15 movie clips, you know, that are using this word that you're trying to learn. And, uh, you know, that can be good for uh, uh, some select things. But, you know, really, you, you need to overall learn the language. Uh, yeah, there's, there's going to be a multivariate approach to that. So anyway, that was something that just chapped my hide. You, you, you really like, hey, you know, you're thinking a bit more about this, about how you're learning the language, not just, uh, you know, showing a movie clip, right? All right. Jared's
2: hide is chapped. Ni to y'all. I'm Marcus Murphy. Take howdy, mix it with ni hao, and ni howdy, y'all. I'm a Chinese language instructor here at the University of the South in Suwannee, Tennessee today. Marcus is a pretty chill dude who made a series of seemingly small but significant decisions to
0: follow his passions that brought him to where he is today. Stay with us. Fantastic. All right, Marcus, start off with the big question. Why did you start learning Chinese?
2: First thing that always comes to mind is Big Bird in China.
0: I'm not familiar with this.
2: Oh, yeah, Big Bird in China. So it was probably one of the first US TV shows, movies to be filmed in China after Kai Fong and Reform and Opening. So... I think it was early 80s that Big Bird made it over to China. I remember having the book, loving the TV show. On a more serious note, I'm an alum of the university I'm at currently, Swanee University of the South. And I'd heard that the university just started the Chinese program and kind of on a whim, really, I decided to go with Chinese. I heard there were four students in the class, and it was a new program, new teacher, new professor, Therefore, I knew she wouldn't be able to fill us all. And so I thought, why Why not go with it?
0: Tell me about this experience and give me a time frame. Was this 90s,
2: 2000s? What are we looking at here? I started university in 2003. Gotcha. Okay. And uh, everybody who becomes a serious Chinese language learner has a bit of masochism that (laughs) helps them along. And um, certainly was a struggle, but I really enjoyed the struggle from the get go.
0: There's some real common pain points, let will say it, with Chinese, but for you, what were some of your unique struggles?
2: If I could go back and start over, I would probably learn an instrument and become a musician before learning Chinese, because the <laughs> tones were quite difficult for me. And, but the characters from the get-go are just, I found them really interesting. My professor, Xiao Laoshi, very quickly we bonded and connected, and that's one of the great things about a small university like Suwannee, the teachers and the students really value that relationship beyond the classroom. Mm-hmm. So, even the hard parts, she was willing to work with me on it. And the first sentence I ever learned in Chinese was, Ni de jiao en chou. <laughs> and she was horrified that this was my memory of early classes with her. Your feet are stinky. So, she said that to you. Oh, yes, yes. That was. Uh, I think she repeatedly (laughs) would say that to me in class. I guess I just didn't clean my Chaco sandals too much. But yeah, when I brought that up with her recently, she was quite horrified to know that (laughs) that was one of my only memories of Chinese classes with her. But I had many great memories with her, and I started babysitting her child. Oh, really? Yeah, so my first introduction to dumplings, Chinese dumplings, was I'd come over to babysit, and she'd have a piping, massive hot plate of pork and cabbage dumplings, so...
0: I got to hear about this because those experiences encountering like... Chinese kids who speak like native <laughs> Chinese, it's always humbling, right? Because, oh yeah, kid, I should be able to speak with them or something. But then it's like speaking da-da-da-da and they're like using kid words that maybe you're not as familiar with. Yeah. Okay.
2: At the time, she definitely immersed him in Chinese, but yeah, I guess he just was not the willing victim of my Chinese that I had hoped. Maybe he didn't have the patience <laughs> that his mother did, but it almost didn't feel like a class, you know? It was just, it mm. became a part of my life and my being, just learning Chinese. I often tell my students... Even though I started studying 2003, this millennium, (laughs) the iPhone wasn't out yet. There wasn't YouTube to immerse yourself. We had to break out the old paper dictionaries to look up characters. And even though that was all true, there were ways that we could immerse ourselves beyond the classroom, such as connecting with the professor, office hours, Chinese table, took a Chinese movie class, Chinese philosophy class where... Even though I knew very little about Confucius and philosophy in general, I quickly became the expert in the class because I knew a little Chinese.
0: <laughs> you mentioned here Chinese tables. Maybe you could tell me a little more about this. I'm unfamiliar with that.
2: Essentially, every language here at Swanee University South, at least once a week, the language departments will allow their professors to eat in the dining hall with the students. And yeah, the idea is that it's fully immersive, and, and mm. we welcome students who aren't necessarily serious students of the language to come give it a shot, but it's not a huge group, so the effective filter is lower to belt, and students feel more comfortable having a relaxed conversation, putting their skills to use.
0: You'd say the Chinese-only like you're sitting here, you're speaking Chinese, right?
2: Yeah, but did my two years of language that was required, and I was probably about to dive into my major a little more, which was natural resources. So a focus on Mm -hmm. forestry and geology. And by happenstance, a political science professor, Scott Wilson, he was able to get some funding for that summer after my sophomore year to take students to China Mm. to do some research. And we went to Shanghai for about five, six weeks. And we just looked at the evolving neighborhoods of shanghai oh wow yeah it was without a doubt the trajectory changing moment I gotta say
0: there that's something honestly is like dear to my heart i lived in shanghai for eight years and one of my favorite things was when i got an electric bike you know you can cruise the neighborhoods and i just love exploring the old neighborhoods i've literally within the inner ring road i've been down at least 90 percent of all the streets and even on the outer ring road a lot more so it's more developed now than i guess it was there in the early 2000s but what were you guys doing there what were you experiencing
2: so the Vernacular architecture, the Shikumen and the Lilongs.
0: I see a lot of those in Huangpu down there.
2: Yeah, and I didn't know what they were called at the time, but the neighborhood committees, we were collaborating with them. They would bring us into people's homes. Wow. And we would just interview them about how essentially their lives and the neighborhood and their connections with the people were changing. And from the very first interview, I just was amazed at how hospitable people were. Just how alive <laughs> Shanghai was. So, of the students that were invited to China, we were all language learners, and I think I was a little behind. We all are. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember being, we're at a hotel in huaihai and every night I would come down and sit at a little yang rou chuar place, mm. and just sit there and eat some chua all night, have a beer or two, and talk to the barbecuer for hours. And... That was definitely, again, a very willing victim of my Chinese language skills. And that's when I also realized that I have learned something. I also remember the first interview I conducted just being Mm. really fascinated by the life of the person I had interviewed. She had been happily married for over 50 years. She met her husband on their wedding day. Wow. And one of the quotes that I reflect on quite a bit was, China's developing fast, we're doing great things, and soon every Chinese family will have a piano in their house like American Mm. families. (laughs) Yeah, I've thought about that quite a bit over the years. I don't know why that (laughs) struck a chord with me, if you will. Just this idea that they think all (laughs) Americans' families have pianos, and that's a goal we should go after.
0: It is interesting to see how... When you get outside of your culture, sometimes you get a better understanding of how your culture is perceived, right, from the outside. And sometimes that brings interesting insights and discoveries into that. And it sounds like that was one of those experiences for you.
2: Without a doubt. I didn't see myself necessarily finding a career that intersected with China, but... Also during that trip I just remember walking around and meeting folks and getting job offers left and right. To
0: teach English, right?
2: <laughs> uh yeah. A lot of English teaching jobs offering left and right. So I thought, hey, if something doesn't pan out post graduation in O seven, I can always move to China and that's what I did. <laughs>
0: oh, so you did? I mean and I know oh seven that was just kind of the front end of the financial crisis, right? Right. I was in business school from 07 to 09, so yeah, I was in the ivory tower and watching the economy crumble around me, but it was still pretty rough in 09. How did this all work out for you then?
2: My major was natural resources in the environment. I wanted to combine my interest in China and the environment, And I was able to find an internship through an uncle, actually. He had a connection with an insurance company that was outsourcing a lot of the kind of menial paperwork and other signature readings and these types Mm -hmm. of things to this company in Qingdao, China, that my uncle knew of. I wasn't as much of a language teacher as I was kind of a cultural teacher. I was there to help the Chinese employees better understand US culture, US business culture, train them for trips to the US for training. And it was a great opportunity to hit the ground running and have a lot of great connections in Qingdao, China. And I didn't know too much about Qingdao prior to moving. But from the first day, I just fell in love with the place and still think of it as a second home.
0: So you were there for how many years?
2: So I ended up spending over four years in Qingdao. I finished my internship at Resource Pro, after six months, and had considered staying on at that job, but it was an English office. I wasn't getting as much Chinese practice in as I'd hoped, and that was always one of the larger goals of being there, really conquering mm-hmm. Mandarin. so I decided to actually start up my own little guide company mm. and this was early two thousand eight, so just prior to the Beijing Olympics happening right mm-hmm. eight 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 and I had already found a lot of really great hikes just near town. I'd really gotten into the history there with the history of the German colony and just some really neat architecture in the old town there as well. So I found out just all this really neat stuff about the city and even really great rock climbing, just 15 minutes hike from what is now the Central Business District. So I just threw up a website and thought I'd see where it went. I knew there'd be a lot of international athletes, journalists, etc., coming to Qingdao for the Olympics. Did I mention that's where the sailing was hosted? Oh. Qingdao was the host of the sailing for the Olympics. So threw up the website, and from the get-go, it just it took off. And oh, wow. Yeah, so for about a year and a half, I ran this. What started out mostly as historical tours, hikes up to beautiful swimming holes at Laoshan Mountain, And then eventually it evolved into that original interest in environmental studies, and I began leading some environmental education trips for international schools in and around Qingdao. Oh, wow. That was one of the times my language skills really picked up. I can just remember having to negotiate with everybody from like a little farmhouse up in the mountains about costs of bringing <laughs> 10 <laughs> families to camp out for the night, to uh, trying to negotiate with a fisherman to take us on his boat out to explore a little island just off the coast. So I was just finally getting to pretty much daily all day. I really put my skills to use.
0: Wow, that's great. Creating, I guess, these customized adventures, right? Or just trying to figure out different things people could do, right? get to use your Chinese a whole lot.
2: Someone's life didn't entirely depend upon it, but <laughs> the stakes were quite high. So I had to make mm-hmm. sure I was getting it right and doing my research. So
0: it sounds like if someone needs someone to take them around China, you're the man, at least around Qingdao, right? Well, yeah, <laughs> Shandong, Qingdao. <laughs> so it sounds like this was a good enterprise for you. You had a lot of clients, right. and you're doing a lot of tours and it sounds like a fun job. So why did you decide to leave it?
2: I had stumbled upon an opportunity to start my master's at the local university, Qingdao University. I was able to do my master's there. They just started a teaching Chinese as a second language program. And I did my master's right alongside students from China doing their master's.
0: So this was in Chinese?
2: Correct. The classes were a hundred percent in Chinese, the readings and
0: This is hardcore, right? So okay, John, he also did his master's in Chinese and so the entrance exams all are handwritten, you know, everything. So it sounds like this was a similar type of experience.
2: Yeah, and again the goal always was to conquer that unconquerable Chinese language. But I just knew this program would also be a great way for me to build some skills that might transfer back home again someday. And I had had a lot of friends I'd made over the two years and so I always had that speaking and li- the speaking and listening opportunities abounded and I certainly read a lot of Chinese but now I was required to read 30 40 50 pages a night mm. in Chinese about pedagogy <laughs> <laughs> yeah a lot of topics that would have been difficult for me in English so that amount of input and it's influence on my speaking and listening was yeah very apparent very quickly.
0: Wow. So post degree then you graduated you finished the program you're teaching Chinese now but so where did you make that jump?
2: Yeah, so even when I got in the program I don't think my original goal was to come back and be a Chinese language teacher. I'd finished my masters in December and then I came home for the lunar new year for a mm-hmm. few weeks to visit family and then I had a job lined up to go back to in China for an education company back in Qingdao that was looking to start essentially a teacher training program. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't fully committed to it, but I knew that was going to start in the summer. But then I was home and had a couple days left, and I had heard about a position that had opened at a local school near my home, and thought I would just give it a shot, see what happens. It was a really great school. I heard about a great program that had been started by a recent guest of the show, actually, Jason Brooks. Oh, yeah, Jason. At the Macaulay School in Chattanooga.
0: Fantastic, yeah.
2: And so I heard he was moving on, and this position was opening, so I thought I'd give it a shot, and yeah, just one or two days before I jumped on that flight to get back. Wow. Landed the job, and Still came back to China to hang out before the job started in the fall.
0: What was it, though, that kept you off that plane? All right. Obviously, you could have gotten back on that plane and said, I'm going to go. But there was something about, I guess, this job? Or was it being in America that said, hey, I want to do this one instead?
2: My motivations for returning home were many. I mean, there were some personal ones, just reconnecting with family. I was a bit frightened that if I didn't come home and give this teaching thing a try... I might not ever get back home. <laughs> My skills might not be transferable back to the U.S. So,
0: yeah, I jokingly sometimes call that you know sometimes you're looking at like a life sentence, right, in China. <laughs> Your whole career, right. everything is over there, right? <laughs> so oh, yeah. I'll never make it back. But
2: it was tough getting back. I struggled mm-hmm. with being back, and almost daily thought about <laughs> the excitement and the thrill of living in China, and the exploration, and. But I also really enjoyed being back home, reconnecting mm-hmm. with family and friends, and very quickly met my now wife after returning. So There we go. Yeah. <laughs> and after being home for a year teaching, I went back to see friends again that next summer in Qingdao. And I remember everybody was so surprised that my language skills had actually improved. So I would lived in China for years. For La Wai, I had pretty decent skills. Mm-hmm. But I came home for a year, taught Chinese language, Chattanooga, Tennessee, not many places to immerse myself in the language. Went back to China, visit friends, and all my friends were just quite surprised that I was able to improve my Chinese so much. And I think it really was that maxim that if you want to learn something, teaching it is a great way to really solidify your skills and focus on the things that maybe you didn't focus so much on at the beginning that are important.
0: How would you contrast those two experiences of being a learner versus now teaching the language, and what perspective do you think you have now that maybe you didn't have when you were first starting out or even when you were progressing in your skills?
2: All learners can also be teachers and vice versa, right? I still very much see myself as a learner of the Chinese language, and I will be (laughs) probably till the day I die. We always have to continue to connect with the language if we want to stay fresh with our skills and so I'm able to do that a lot now with Chinese podcasts those mandarin companion books and other great ways to immerse myself in the language but I think the thing I bring to it still is I've found a way to explore my interests within the language and that's what I encourage my students to do is mm. you got to make it a part of your life and find a way to bring your interest within the language
0: I'm going to frame something here. It might feel a bit old, but it looks like your Chinese journey started almost 20 years ago, right?
2: <laughs> wow. Yeah, when you put it like that. Put it that, that way. Right? <laughs> okay, anyway. But
0: I'm curious to know in your experience from when you started learning Chinese till now, how have you seen the whole field of education around Chinese language learning change? And what things have you done differently versus what you experienced maybe in those earlier days and how have things changed?
2: I think I... Touched upon the torture of looking up characters in a paper dictionary today, where my students, if they want to look up a character, they can mm-hmm. simply point their pleco o c r yes <laughs> at a textbook and they 're good to go right and it 's still pretty easy for me to <laughs> quickly notice when students are putting more than one word at a time in a dictionary, but some of them still haven 't caught on to how easy that is for me to catch, but sadly. When I first started, things for China and the U.S. were quite hopeful, and there was a lot of positivity there. And as we all are quite aware, that's just not the case right now for mainland China-U.S. relations. Even before the pandemic, right, things had taken Mm -hmm. quite a negative turn. And from even back in 2005 when I was there in Shanghai, and the lady told me how someday everybody in China would own a piano in their house just like Americans. I knew there were a lot of misunderstandings, both ways. Originally, I was there in China as this cultural teacher and I was supposed to help them with their understanding of the U.S. But then I realized China has a much better grasp of what the U.S. is like than the U.S. does of China. So since returning to the U.S., one of my main missions has been to help people in the U.S. to better understand China. If we're friends, there's plenty of reasons to learn Chinese and more about China. If we're foes, there's arguably even more reasons.
0: Well, what are those approaches that you take? It sounds like that is something important, building that cross-cultural understanding. So if you encounter someone who is very negative towards China in whatever aspect, how do you approach someone like that and try to help build a bridge of understanding?
2: First year of being back in the U.S., I was often being called a panda-hugging communist (laughs) for some of my views on China. But I think if a student has a very kind of monolithic view of what China and Chinese people are like. If I can just make that perception a little more complex, then I feel like that's a success. And I've certainly been able to do that with many students, but not all. So tell us about this.
0: I know you're running this camp for people who want to learn Chinese, and I guess they don't even really have to have a lot of Chinese language if they want to participate. So
2: maybe you could talk about that. Definitely. So I returned to my alma mater, Swanee University of South here, I signed on just before the pandemic had began and started in May of the pandemic. That was concurrent with the closings of the last of the Confucius Institutes. I knew they were hosting a lot of summer camps, and those were all pretty much disappearing. And I thought, I'm not going to be too busy this summer. Why not try and throw a language camp together? And we're blessed with a lot of space here, and so we were in person and right we were able to yeah host a summer camp that second summer of the pandemic and the goals really were yeah to give high school students specifically a chance to just really enjoy the chinese language instead of having those stuffy classroom lessons and we just wanted to create a space where students could come we certainly do push students and still have them in the classroom a bit but we take that learning outside, and we're blessed with 13,000 acres of mostly mountaintop and mountainside. Wow. There's actually seven caves on our campus. So we go caving and lots of little ponds to swim in when it gets hot in the afternoon. And there are probably 50 rock climbing routes right on campus, just a short walk from the residential halls. So amazing! we give students a chance to get out of their comfort zone with the language a bit, but also hopefully learn some other skills while at it about environmental sustainability and outdoor sports if they have an interest there.
0: That sounds like it's a great opportunity, a great
2: camp to be a part of, and
0: also improve your Chinese, right? Exactly. I'm curious to know, it sounds like you've done a lot of really interesting things here, and looking back, it's been kind of fun walking down memory lane with you, recounting a lot of your experiences. But what advice would you give to someone who's starting to learn Chinese right
2: now? Just finding a way to enjoy it. Putting your phone away. Closing your screen, getting a pad of paper out, and writing a character 30 times. For some people, that's very uh, enjoyable and meditative. Finding a way to enjoy your passion for soccer or fashion or anime, whatever it may be. Even from a beginner level, right? You can watch some Chinese anime with English subtitles. Or if you're really into rap music, there's some Mm. great Chinese rap coming out these days. So Mm. just find a way to enjoy it.
0: Words of wisdom. So Marcus, if people want to find out a little bit more about you and maybe even find out about this Chinese camp, uh, where can they go?
2: Yeah. So our camp has a website. If you look up Chinese language camp, SWANI, and that's S-E-W-A-N-E-E. Google Swanee Chinese language camp. It should pop right up.
0: We'll put a link in the show notes too for anyone who's interested. Awesome. Well, Marcus, I really appreciate you taking the time to share your story and experience with us. I've really enjoyed this.
2: Same here. And thanks for all you've done for the Chinese language world. I I don't think I was able to mention it, but I've I've been a longtime follower of both you and John. I still remember listening to John when I first showed up in Qingdao on my iPod Nano. Chinese pod back in the day. Yeah, (laughs) that's great. That's awesome. So thanks for all you've done to make it enjoyable for students.
0: Our pleasure, Marcus. Appreciate that. You have been listening to the You Can Learn Chinese podcast. Help us spread the word by sharing this with your friends, classmates, teachers, cousins, philosopher, trainer, landscaper, animator, mechanic, that one gal named Paula. You can subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And please write us a review so we know how we're doing. You can find us on Facebook and at ManorCompanion.com or tag us on social media. Hashtag Manor Companion. Apologies to John Cena. We just ran out of time. You Can Learn Chinese Podcast. It's produced by myself, Jared Turner, and our editor is Kaiser Guo. And interview editor is Dominic Edgley. I'd like to thank our special guest, Marcus Murphy. And of course, thanks to my co-host, the man, the myth, the legend, John Pest. See you next
1: time.